invite you, if you, if you would, to turn to Matthew 27 this morning. And as you're turning there, I'd like you to listen to this account. Some 20 years after the horrid war crimes at Auschwitz, Adolf Eichmann was brought to trial. The principal witness of Auschwitz survivor was Yehiel Denur. Denur entered the courtroom and came face to face with Eichmann for the first time since being sent to Auschwitz. Stopped cold, Denur began to sob uncontrollably and then fainted while the presiding judge pounded his gavel for order. The reason was not hatred or intimidation. But as Denur said it, I was afraid of myself. I saw that I am capable to do this. I am exactly like he. Eichmann is in all of us. This morning, as we study the trial of Jesus in Matthew 27, we will see, perhaps like we would never see anywhere else, a picture of the sinfulness of the human heart. We will see that Denur was right when he said that Eichmann is in all of us. It's a pretty heavy topic, the trial of Jesus, the Roman trial of Jesus. It's heavy because, again, we see the sinfulness of humanity. The positive side is, as we study the trial of Jesus, the Roman trial in particular, is that we also see the greatness of Christ. We see His greatness as shown through His meekness, His power under control. We see the greatness of Christ as we see His love, as He is voluntarily voluntarily enduring all of this. It's with the purpose of securing our redemption. We will see as He endures all of this that He is guiltless that He is righteous. I would encourage you to keep those two themes in mind as we work our way through Matthew 27, 1 through 31. It's a large section of Scripture. We won't have a particular outline or anything like that, but if you just keep those two themes in mind, you'll see them coming up again and again. The extreme sinfulness of the human heart, the extreme greatness of Jesus Christ. And if you catch that this morning, I think you've rightly understood the intention of this particular passage. We will be skipping over verses 3 through 10 because we covered that just last week as it deals with Judas. So we won't talk about that this morning. Let's go ahead and get right after it and begin in verse 1, chapter 27. It says, Now when morning came should have been daylight hours, not one or two in the morning, but daylight, all the chief priests, that is the religious professionals, and the elders of the people, 
those who would be what we might call the distinguished lay leaders, religiously speaking, conferred together against Jesus to put him to death. They're not looking for objective measures. They're they're not looking for objective facts so that they can present an objective case. Their end game, their end game is to have him crucified, to have him killed. That is their agenda. That's what they're looking for. As it says right there, they conferred together against Jesus. Why? To put him to death. That is their agenda. Now, what brings us to this point, especially if you haven't been with us recently, just to remind you what's brought us to this point, Jesus has stood before the Jews, the Jewish officials already. They had him arrested. He stood before Annas, John 18 tells us. He stood before Caiaphas, the the reigning Jewish high priest, Matthew 26, 57 to 68. And before Caiaphas... They condemned Jesus. They, they said he is guilty of blasphemy, guilty of speaking lies against the one true God. And so we've already seen the Jewish phase of the trial. The problem is the Jews aren't going to carry out the crucifixion. They're not going to carry out the execution. They're going to have the Romans do it. At least that's their agenda. They want him to not only be killed... They want him to be crucified so he could be accursed, as the Old Testament would have us to know. And so they need to get Jesus to the Romans. They need to get him to Pilate so he can be condemned before Pilate and be crucified. The problem with that is, if they go to Pilate and say, he's a blasphemer, he speaks lies against the one true God, we want you to crucify him. The problem with that is, multifaceted. The, 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 the Romans aren't particularly fond of the Jews to begin with, nor are the Jews fond of the Romans, but they have this working relationship together as they're trying to, especially the leaders are trying to use each other to accomplish their own means. But stop and think about the fact that we're dealing with the Romans here. They're, they're polytheistic. They're, they're, they're rank pagans with many gods, ancestral worship, all kinds of things like that. So they're going to crucify someone They're going to crucify someone because they've spoken a lie against the one true God? This doesn't make a lot of sense if you're a Roman polytheist. There are other issues involved, but that's probably just enough for now. For me to say, the reason they're, as it says in verse 1, conferring together, they're plotting together, is because they need to shore up their arguments so that they can go to Rome and say, he's guilty. They won't say of blasphemy at that point in time, even though that's what they think. It's got to be something political. He needs to be an insurrectionist. He has to be a threat to the government or something like that. And so they're they're getting their ducks in a row, if you will, so that they can do that very thing. They're conferring together. They're plotting together. My observation is, I guess they're doing what corrupt religious leaders do best. Misrepresenting Jesus for personal gain. That is what they are doing. So with all of their devious arguments all framed up, let's move forward. Verse 2. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him to Pilate, the governor. I would like you to turn to Luke, if you would. And I'll mention Luke several times. And so if you just turn over a couple of books to the right, Luke 23 
And once in a while, we're going to need to, need to fill in some of the details so that it, it flows a, a bit better, so we can understand the chronology a little bit better and understand different perspectives of things. I think it might be helpful. So they bring him to Pilate. He's brought before Pilate. And what is it that they say to Pilate? How is it that they present him as an insurrectionist, as, as somehow something different than a blasphemer so that Pilate will sign off on the execution? Well, Luke 23, 2 says, And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation, forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ a king. And we read that and we say, that is the most pathetic thing I've ever seen. That's their case against Jesus? You know, pathetic for starters that, that he's misleading our nation? What a weird thing for them to say. What a pathetic thing for them to say in the light of the fact that they despise the Romans. They're under Roman rule and they're busy going to Rome saying, you know what, Jesus is a problem because, because he's, he's, he's going to cause problems with our nation. The fact is they would love it if Jesus would cause problems right then there when it comes to politics. They would, they would love for that to happen. And so they're just trying to, to play right into the hands of what, with what Rome might like or go for. Uh, and then they accuse him of tax evasion. That's just a blatant flat out lie. Jesus in Matthew 20 talks about giving to Caesar what is Caesar's. He, he would have been helping Rome if anything. Then he claims to be Messiah, saying that he himself is Christ. Well, that's true. But in light of what's come before, they're obviously putting the wrong spin on it, painting it in the wrong light. They're, they're presenting, it, presenting it as if Jesus somehow exists to, to overthrow the government and, and be, you know, his whole existence is to be a threat to Caesar or something like that. Now, so those are their accusations. Now before we, we, we hear from Pilate and we, we actually see what happens there, let me say a few things about Pilate that might help us understand a little bit. Pilate's been governing this region for about 10 years. He was appointed by Tiberius Caesar in AD 26. Typically that post that he is holding is one that is held by a military man and in fact he is a military man. There's an ancient inscription at Caesarea that actually gives him the title of prefect. He's a military leader who can, who can grant life. You're innocent, you're free, and he can condemn people to death. He really doesn't need permission to do such things. He holds that kind of power. Usually what would happen is you'd send someone like a pilot to a certain region where there's going to be problems. And he's going to rule with an iron fist, if you will, making sure there aren't problems like a military leader can do. The Jewish historian Josephus tells us that Pilate had done plenty to go against the Jews. He didn't try to understand them very much at all. He has been known to defile their temple already at this point in time. High-handed religious sin. He's killed Jews. He stole their money to fund city projects. Their sacred money, their Corbin money. We don't have as much historical evidence to emphasize this or to see this as clearly, but some believe that at this point in time he's already been reprimanded by Caesar, which could explain a lot why he is tentative in certain decisions that he makes. He's certainly feeling the pressure for doing the right thing. He certainly does blow it because by AD 36 he's recalled and he is finally banished for doing such a poor job. 
So Pilate's not exactly a poster child for stability. He's not exactly a poster child for anything. He's a politician and not necessarily a good one. So that's the man Jesus stands before. Now let's keep reading. If you would join me in verse 11, you'll see that it says, Now Jesus stood before the governor, standing before Pilate. And the governor questioned him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, It is as you say. Which is Jesus' way of, of not denying what he says, he, but he's also saying it in such a way as to give some qualification. Jesus is, in fact, the king of the Jews. He acknowledges that he is the king of the Jews, but it seems that he says it in such a way as to make the point, yes, I am, but not in how you would think. Pilate, when you think king, you think one who is good at compromising, one who's good at politicking, one who is good at manipulating. I'm not that kind of king, but in fact, I am the king of the Jews. And so he is distinguishing himself. The Jews had a wrong understanding who the king would be. Pilate obviously has a a perverted and corrupt view of, of, of who the king would be. The king of the Jews. So he's affirming, but with some qualification. Illustration doesn't work perfectly, but if I were to walk over to the piano, which is a scary thought in and of itself, and with two hands, two fingers, if I were to play masterfully without even any sheet music, Peter, Peter, Pumpkin Eater. And I could do it. I want you to know. And I can also play dun da dun 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 da dun 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 da dun 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 Man, if I were to go over there and play Peter Peter Pumpkin Eater, and then Ludwig von Beethoven were to walk in the room, and I were to say to him, Do you play? What would he say? He would say Yes, you know, he wouldn't want to say, yeah, like you do. He wouldn't want to acknowledge that, but he's the virtuoso. Not the perfect illustration. We get the idea that Jesus, their point of reference is skewed. So he's saying yes, but. So as not to stoop to their level, to their thinking. Well, the Jews jump in at this point in time. Verse 12, And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, remember what the accusations would be from Luke 23, he doesn't pay his taxes. He's trying to overthrow the government. He's, he's trying to create all kinds of problems. And they're, they're throwing all of these accusations at him. As that's happening, verse 12, at the end, he did not answer. Now, I love it when Jesus speaks. But I love it just as much when he stays silent, don't you? Because when Jesus stays silent, well, he's fulfilling prophecy. When he stays silent, he, he's showing that he is meek. He has that power under control. When Jesus say, stays silent at a place like this, it is surely not because he has nothing to say. It's surely not because if he were to open his mouth, somehow he would lose the argument. If Jesus were to open his mouth, remember who Jesus is. Remember that in Matthew 7, the people were awestruck when he opened his mouth. He taught like no one else taught. They were absolutely astounded at the way he spoke and the way that he taught. His logic would be perfect. He didn't have a problem with scripture memory. He wrote it. I mean, everything. he knew the author's intended meaning. He had perfect hermeneutics. I mean, everything was just absolutely right when he spoke. 
So when he doesn't speak, it speaks volumes. And it causes us as his followers to say, I love it when Jesus doesn't speak. Just as we love it when he speaks. Furthermore, when he's not speaking here, we love it because it's because he is committed to the plan of redemption. He's not going to open up his mouth at this point in time and defend himself, tie everyone up in masterful knots because he is committed to saving his people from their sins. And how is he going to save his people from their sins according to Matthew chapter 1? Well, he's going to do it according to Matthew chapter 20 by giving his life as a ransom for many. He's staying silent here and we love it as Christians because he's staying silent because it's all a part of his trek, if you will. His purposeful, intentional road to the cross. That's why we love it when he stays silent. Verse 13, if you'd continue on with me, says, Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? Which is to say, are you not going to say anything to defend yourself? This is your time. This is unheard of. And remember, Pilate is no, no, no ignoramus. Pilate is well aware of Jesus and the things that he said and the things that he's taught. I mean, he has his, his people. He knows what's going on. It's his job to know what's going on. If, if, I mean, if he's ever going to hear someone give a great argument, a great defense, it's Jesus. And he's saying, well, do you have nothing to say? Say something. Verse 14. And he did not answer him with regard to even a single charge. So the governor was quite amazed. He's amazed with Jesus, as we're amazed with Jesus, but for different reasons. At this point in time, in the chronology, Jesus is then sent away from Pilate, by Pilate, to Herod. If you turn to Luke 23, you'll see this. We won't spend a lot of time there, but it does help us to see, again, the sinfulness of the human heart and the greatness of Jesus. In Luke 23, he's sent away. He's sent away to Herod, specifically because Herod was the one who was in charge of Galilee, and Jesus spent so much time in Galilee that Pilate says, let's send him there. Maybe that can allow Pilate to be a better politician so the blood isn't on his hands. Or maybe it can, it can further solidify the fact that Jesus is innocent. So he sends him away. He sends him away to Herod. If you look at Luke 23, verse 7, it says there he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, just like I just explained. And he sent him to Herod, who himself was also in Jerusalem at the time. Remember, it's Passover, all the festivities. And so he is now uh, on location. But Herod finds nothing wrong with him and sends him back. Look at verse 14, partially through the verse there, partway through the verse, I have found no guilt in this man regarding the charges which you make against him. No, nor has Herod, for he sent him back to us. And behold, nothing nothing deserving death has been done by him. That tells us something great about Christ. It's great that in the province of God or the perfect plan of God, he goes to Herod because Herod says he's not guilty of these things. 
which for us underscores and emboldens the reality that Jesus is perfect. Jesus is sinless. Jesus is not going to the cross because he's guilty. And so we're hearing it from Pilate. We're hearing it from Herod. This is good. So the trial does exalt Christ. But the trial also clearly shows us on the other side just how corrupt the religious leaders are. Just how perverted they are. Because even the pagans, when they examine Jesus, say, He's not guilty. Unbelieving, God-defying Romans. I mean, it's just the salt in the wound. And showing just how perverted the religious leaders are. Then for the next couple of verses, beginning in verse 15, it's like an aside. Matthew just steps away from the flow. And he educates the reader. So Matthew's going to educate us. He's going to educate us regarding a Jewish Passover custom. Matthew is thinking, they're not going to really understand when they read this, perhaps, if I don't educate them. Well, thankfully, he's educating us right now. We need to learn something. So let's read verses 15 and 16 and learn a little bit about Jewish tradition during this time. Now, at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the people any one prisoner whom they wanted. At that time, verse 16 says, they were holding a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So he wants us to know that so we can understand better. Interesting note, and some of you have this in the margin of your Bible, some manuscripts say it's not just Barabbas, but it's Jesus Barabbas. Yesun Baraban, it says. Theologically, it's not going to make a bit of difference. But there are some manuscripts, some Greek manuscripts, that actually have it as Jesus Barabbas. That makes for great preaching, by the way. This Jesus Barabbas is the Jesus they're looking for, the corrupt Jews, because, as we will see, he's an insurrectionist. That's who they really wanted Jesus to be. He made a far better Messiah in their eyes than the true Jesus did. But whether it's intentional, whether that was really his name or not, it doesn't really matter ultimately, and we don't know for certain, but I may reference it that way uh, so that you might see the contrast as we go. Luke twenty three nineteen says, that regarding Barabbas, uh, he had been thrown in prison uh, for an insurrection, hostility toward the government made in the city, and for murder. The murder may have been, may have been associated with the insurrection. He's a bad guy. He is guilty. What's interesting about that is that would cause some Jews to love him. That would cause some Jews to like him because, again, they don't like the Roman oppression. So he would have been popular to one degree or another, we would assume. Let's keep going. Knowing this tradition about Barabbas and about releasing someone, we jump back into the flow. Verse 17, So when the people gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you? Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? Which one do you want? It's our tradition to let someone go during this festival. Who would you like me to release? And when you only read Matthew's account, you might be prone to conclude that that Pilate doesn't really know. Pilate doesn't really have a hunch how it's going to fall out. And Pilate doesn't really care, perhaps. 
But when you look at all the gospel accounts, I think you're more prone to think that Pilate is planning to release Jesus, and Pilate even thinks that if he brings this before the populace, they will want Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth, released, not Jesus Barabbas. I say that because of texts like Luke twenty three sixteen. Therefore, I will punish him, Jesus, and release him. He's planning to release him. Other texts, like even, even earlier on in Matthew 21, these same people who were involved here, the general populace in verse 9, remember that's the triumphal entry when they're saying, Hosanna, 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 and, and they're acknowledging Jesus. The crowd, the populace, they, they admire Jesus. They're for Jesus. It says in Matthew 21, 9, the crowds going ahead of him and those who followed were shouting Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And again, Pilate knew that. Pilate was aware that Jesus was popular amongst the people. And remember, this just happened not very long before this. You know, we probably, I probably preached it a year ago, but that's not how the, this is not how the account goes. That had just happened recently. The people were for Jesus. So what does Pilate do? Pilate's planning to release Jesus. That's what he would prefer to do. He thinks that's how it's going to go. And he knows the issue with the religious leaders is they're just jealous. In fact, that's what it says in verse 18. For he knew that because of envy they had handed him over. So what Pilate's going to do is appeal to the people He's going to appeal to the populace, thinking again, if I can just ask the people at large, they'll say, release Jesus. And I realize I'm trying to pull lots of things together. Read all the accounts, and I think that's the conclusion you'll come to. Seems to be what what Pilate's driving at, what he's moving toward. But then, as that's happening, there's an interruption. Newsflash! You have a message from home, Pilate. Mrs. Pilate has a message for you. And so as all of this is happening, we don't know exactly how long it lasted, but as all of this is happening, there's a message, whether it comes via messenger and it comes audibly or it comes written down on the form of a note or somehow she was able to be brought in, who knows? Not as likely. He has a message. The message is recorded for us, but he is interrupted and he, I believe, is even distracted. Verse 19, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, so this is in the midst of the action, his wife, canonized by, as a saint by the Eastern Church, interestingly enough, sent him a message saying, have nothing to do with that righteous man. For last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. Self-explanatory, kind of interesting. She's speaking the truth. But as he is paying attention to the message from his wife, the religious leaders are doing what they're so good at doing. They're manipulating the people. Whether it's through misusing the Bible, which they're so good at, whether it's through bribery, whether it's through threats, The text doesn't say. But as he is dealing with this matter, they're dealing with the populace, the people that they lead, making sure they vote their way. 
not the way they would have been naturally inclined to vote. You'll see what I mean if you look at verse 20. But the chief priests, he's dealing with Mrs. Pilate, but the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death, or you could even translate it to destroy him, destruction. Again, we don't know how they did it, but that's what they were doing. Probably tells us as much about them, the leaders, as it does about the people at large, the followers. They're for Jesus one minute, they're against Him the next. Verse 21 says, But the governor said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? Anticipation? Jesus! Verse 21 ends with, And they said, Barabbas! And we say, This is astonishing! This is astonishing because, again, it tells us so much about the human heart. In fact, it tells us so much about the human heart that we would probably prefer to assume that it tells us nothing about the human heart so we don't have to think about the human heart. Hosanna! Hosanna! Give us Jesus. This is absolutely amazing. Verse 22 goes on. It gets more amazing. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And what I wrote down in my notes is, Pilate, what are you asking such questions for? He's he's trying to be a good politician, which is never good anyway, but there's a time to ask questions as a leader, and there's there's a time not to ask questions as a leader. This would be a time not to ask questions. Pilate, you are such a politician. Pilate, you you have the power to dismiss Jesus. Yes, there could be some, some shake-up as a result, but you're just digging yourself in further. If you release him after asking these stupid questions, then, then there will be a problem. Well, nevertheless, stupid as he may be, God's will is being done, and he's using stupid people to accomplish his means of redemption, which we are thankful for. Let's keep reading. He asked the dumb question, then he gets the answer that he wasn't looking for. Verse 22 ends with, They all, I emphasize all, not just the leaders now, they all said, crucify him. In unison. Together. A united front. Hosanna, Hosanna. Now it's crucify him. Not just kill him at this point in time. Execute him by the most severe, calculated, offensive means known to humanity at the time. And think about the irony of that. Crucify Him? You mean the one who only ever spoke the truth? You mean the one who was always loving and kind and gracious and compassionate? You mean the one who who even reached out to your children when other religious leaders wanted nothing to do with them? You mean the one who loved people so much that he had time for them to help them, to heal them? You mean the one who only always did what is right? You mean him? Yeah, we mean him. Crucify him! This is outrageous. This is horrific. (laughs) 
Then another feeble politician's attempt to persuade the crowd. Verse 23, and he said, Why? What evil has he done? Give me some objective evidence. Time for that is over. Verse 23, instead of giving objective evidence, but they kept shouting all the more saying, crucify him. So what are they doing? Crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. They're doing what I love to say, but I try not to do. They are saying, don't confuse us with the facts. We know what we believe. Which is our default mode so many times. That's what they're doing. They're saying, objectivity? We're taking it on faith. As if faith is not objective. But that's their mindset. This is horrific. Verse 24 then says, When Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting... By the way, I think he could have averted all of that if he just would have done the right thing to begin with. Again, providence of God, this is the way it's happening. But he couldn't afford a riot. He took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. And many believe that this is not a Roman custom. He's actually been with the Jews long enough to know their Jewish customs and their ceremonial washings. And on purpose, he's using one of their own customs, cleansing his hands symbolically, which would have been a big insult to them, saying, I have nothing to do with this. And even to show you your own corruptness and your own perversion, from me, a pagan, I'm using your religion to show you your own paganness. And at least on this level, at this point in time, we say we like Pilate. (laughs) Saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to that yourselves. The wording is not identical, but it's essentially the same. That last little statement there at the end of verse 24, see to that yourselves or see yourselves. Remember that? Remember when Judas was backpedaling a little bit, felt guilty about what he did, and he came to the Jewish religious leaders, and he told them, you know, this is a problem, and I want out, and they said, see yourself. That is to say, this is your problem, not ours. Well, now it's, you Jews, this is your problem, not ours, not mine. Interesting. What they did to Judas, he's doing to them. Intentional? I don't know. Verse 25 then says, And all the people, again, I can't emphasize enough, not just the religious leaders at this point in time, all the people said, His blood shall be on us and on our children. Can you believe that? That is like, the most cosmically stupid thing you could ever say. I mean, they're so perverted and so twisted, they're saying, bring it on. Bring it on, not only us, but you know what? May the blood be on our children. And you think, you've got to be kidding me. 
What in the world? What in the world? Verse 26 then says, Then he released Barabbas for them, but after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. I don't know about you, but even before we get into that, I just go through this trying to pay attention and trying to put all the things together, and I just don't even know what to do. Just inside, you think, this this is just horrific, and it's bad, and it's horrible, and what in the world? All the people... And now he's handed over to be crucified. They're getting what they want. After having Jesus scourged. I'm going to purposely not get into a lot of details when it comes to that. I will purposely talk about the crucifixion in some detail when we get there. Just know that this was no small thing. This oftentimes would have been what killed a person. Remember, the Jews were limited on how many scourgings they could give, how many lashes. The, Jew, the, the Romans weren't limited. It was whenever they're done getting their kicks off the one they're scourging. So they're going to take the whip. They would have had pieces of glass, perhaps, pieces of lead, pieces of bone for maximum flesh-ripping capabilities, maximum pain infliction, and they are going to whip Jesus until they are done whipping Jesus. Oftentimes to the bone. Remember, Isaiah the prophet says he was marred more than any man. The crucifixion alone wouldn't do that. They are going to make a disaster out of Jesus. Because it's what the people wanted. It's what the Jews wanted. The people who had the right message, the right God, the right Bible, and are totally perverted because just having the right Bible, just having the right message, just knowing some facts about the one true God doesn't change anybody's heart. And while they were fans of Jesus... Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. They would have been good at singing praise choruses. Don't just kill him. Crucify him. Don't just crucify him. We want the blood on our hands and on our family's hands. This is no accident. We're doing all of this on purpose. Denur is right. Eichmann is in them. All of this so that verse 26, Barabbas can be released. It's kind of tough to swallow, huh? Barabbas, a murderer, insurrectionist, Jesus, perfect, righteous, love, grace, kindness, mercy, long-suffering, 
truth. Jesus, Nazareth, Jesus, Barabbas. Tough to swallow that that's going to be the exchange. But if we use that as an illustration, Jesus, the righteous, perfect truth, love, Savior, all of those things. Pat Abendroth, the sinner, exchange. We say, that's grace. We say that's mercy and kindness and the generosity of God. Not a bad illustration. And not a bad reminder to us that as horrific as all of this is and as unjust as it is, God is loving and kind and gracious to do such a thing spiritually as He will do by having Christ die. Then comes the mocking of the soldiers in verse 27. And it says there in the verse, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole Roman cohort around Him. If it's the whole Roman cohort in one sense, that's about 600 Roman soldiers. It could mean that. It could also mean all of those who were on duty at the time, the whole of that group, irregardless, it's a large group. It doesn't have to be the 600. So there they are, having a great time. It's a festive time. Verse 28, they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, making him look like a king. And after, remember what's already been done to him as well. And after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head. No doubt it wasn't to make sure that it didn't scratch him. They put it on his head and a reed in his right hand, a mock staff. And they knelt down before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! They spat on him and took the reed and began to beat him on the head. After they mocked him, they took the scarlet robe off and put, it, put, on his, gar- put his own garments back on him and led him away to crucify him. bad it's really bad right I don't need to tell you that it's bad because again while we've been able to be somewhat comfortable working our way through the gospel account Because it's typically been the leaders who are bad. This is extraordinarily bad because it's gone way beyond the leaders. Now it's everybody. This is bad because of who Jesus is and we know who He is. Innocent, even over and over again by pagans, they're saying He's innocent in this passage. And then we see... The us in the passage, the populace at large, and they're doing this to him, which makes it all the more heinous, which shows how dark and how black their hearts are. It shows the Eichmann in them. It shows the Eichmann in us. This is really, really bad stuff. But it should cause us 
to see how great Christ is. He could have, even as he said earlier in Matthew's account, he could have called down more angels than we could count for the purpose of mowing down everybody and having it all be over. He could have done that. He didn't. He didn't because he loved sinners. He didn't because he was staying on target to save his people from their sins. That started in chapter 1. That's been the whole purpose of his earthly ministry. No doubt serving the greater purpose of bringing glory and all of those things. But he's here as the Redeemer. He's here as the one who again would give his life as a ransom for many, as the text says, so that he could save them from their sins. And so even when we look at something like this, we remember that this is all according to his perfect plan. He's doing this voluntarily. This is happening so that we can see, yes, the sinfulness of the human heart, so that we can see that we need a Savior. So we can see him and his greatness and his power and his majesty and his meekness. I'd like you to turn to one more passage, and that's Acts chapter 3. Because as bad as this is, it's interesting that it's not without hope. Yes, Eichmann is in all of us, but because of what happened to Jesus... There's hope for us. There's absolutely hope. Peter, in Acts chapter 3, he's going to draw upon this event that we just saw here. In Acts 3.13 it says, The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified His servant Jesus. I wasn't even going to talk about that, but that's hopeful right there. It's hopeful to us because we know it doesn't end the way that we're leaving it this morning. He glorified His servant Jesus. It didn't end there. But here's what I wanted you to see. The one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. Even the pagan knew the right thing to do. And you chose not to. You insisted, verse 14, but you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. He is poking his finger in their eye and saying, you are so perverse and so sinful. And you say, what's hopeful about that? Drop down to verse 19 for the sake of time. In Peter's sermon, drawing upon that event that happened not that long before he preaches this, in verse 19, therefore, repent. Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away. And we'll just stop there for, for, for our purposes for this morning. That's hope. It's not, you did that to Jesus, it's unpardonable. You are such the Eichmann. No, because God is gracious and loving and kind and merciful. Peter is able to say, let me bring up a historical event, which is the worst historical event that has ever, ever, ever happened. And let me say to you, repent. Repent so that your sins can be forgiven. So that your sins can be wiped away. This is absolutely amazing. This is one of the most amazingly hopeful things we would ever see in the Bible. 
to leave that horrific, horrific, unjust, dark account of Matthew 27 and then to see Peter use that as his example and say, repent so you can be forgiven of that? Folks, what a great God this God is. He is indeed a great and gracious God to be able to do that. And how can He do that? He can only do that because He was having His Son again go through all of that for all of us Eichmanns so that we could be justly forgiven. God is not going to say, it's no big deal what you did to my son. I can just forgive it. No. I'm going to punish my son on the cross so that he can pay for your sins that you committed against me, including putting him on the cross and treating him like you treated him with injustice and unrighteousness. This is good stuff. This is great stuff. Meditate on the cross. Meditate on His trial. Meditate on the hope and the forgiveness of sins. Meditate on these things. I would encourage you to to, to stop wasting your life and all the other stuff and have first and foremost be seeing Jesus Christ for who He is and for what He did and the hope that is in Him and have that impact all of the other stuff you do. This has got to be central, first and foremost, number one. What a great and gracious God. And we can see it right here amidst one of the worst passages in the whole Bible. Pray with me if you would. Father, thank you for Jesus Christ, your great Son, who died in our place, who rose again from the dead. There's hope in Him. And because of what He did, Peter can call people to repent and to have their sins forgiven. And we do the same, God. Calling people by Your grace to repent of their sin and and to believe in Christ, to embrace Jesus as the Messiah, as the Savior, the One who offers hope and forgiveness and life. We love Him so. And we ask that you would help us to love him even more. We want to exist for the glory of Christ, to exalt his name, to praise him, to glorify him. We are so thankful for your great son in whose name we pray. Amen.